Welcome to a new episode of my IB Notes podcast. Today we are looking at psychology chapter six, the sociocultural approach. Um, so social psychology is the study of how groups influence behavior. It investigates why we hold stereotypes and prejudices against others, how we construct our social world and form opinions and attitudes about others. Case studies. Sociocultural researchers take a holistic approach to studying human behavior. Case studies are often useful because they aim to give a detailed picture of an individual or a small group of people in different contexts. They have the potential to generate rich data with real relevance to the participant's life. Field experiments are conducted when a participant in a participant's own environment. Investigators manipulate an independent variable and then measure the effect on the dependent variable. Participants are often unaware that they are in an experiment and the natural location has less control over the variables. Field experiments are much less artificial and result in more and the results are more ecologically valid. Observations are carried out by researchers taking a sociocultural approach because this method observes behavior in its social settings. Researchers have a number of options, including the participant and non-participant observation carried out covertly or overtly. Emic and etic approaches to research. The emic approach focuses on the perspectives and the words of participants. It uses accounts and descriptions given in the very words used by members being studied. The researcher tries to put psychological theories aside and let the data from participants speak for itself. This approach is the basis of the grounded theory, where the theory grows out of the material rather than if the theory matches the data itself. The etic approach is the opposite and is focused on being universal. It uses its starting point theories and concepts from outside of the setting being studied. They will use an existing theory and see if it applies to a new setting or population. One strength of the etic approach is that it allows more general cross-culture concepts to emerge. Ethics and sociocultural research methods. The desire to investigate human behavior under natural circumstances has led to ethical problems, mainly related to informed consent, access to the research after data has been collected, and causing distress to participants when they learn they have been deceived. A significant amount of research is naturalistic and involved covert participant observation. This approach has been um, anticized on ethical, criticized on ethical grounds. However, studies like this from the past have contributed significantly to knowledge regarding human behavior, and this could be seen as a means of justification. Social identity theory refers to the way someone thinks about themselves and evaluates themselves in relation to groups. It posits the idea that a person's sense of who they are is based on their membership of social groups. Social identity theory was first proposed by Henry Tafschel in 1971. He argued that the groups to which we belong are an important source of pride and self-esteem. We feel good about ourselves by boosting the status of any group we belong to. But identifying with a specific in-group to improve our self-esteem can lead to the competition and intolerance against an out-group. Tafschel identified three processes in his theory of social identity. Categorization, which is the process of organizing objects and people into groups. Social categories, such as young or old or doctor or salesman, are used as they describe important attributes of a person. 
Group membership involves acting appropriately and following the group's norms of behavior. Social identification is when we adopt the identity of our group. If you have categorized yourself as a student, chances are you will adapt the identity of a student and conform to the norms of the student group. Your self-esteem may be linked to this group and other groups you belong to. Social comparison. Social comparison involves comparing your group with others. To maintain slash improve your self-esteem, your group must compare well with others. This is critical to understanding prejudice because once two groups identify themselves as rivals, they are likely to compete so that members can maintain and improve their self-esteem. Tafshel et al. 1971 investigated social categorization and intergroup behavior. The aim of this laboratory experiment was to discover the minimum requirements for a participant to identify themselves as members of a group through social categorization. The research question was, can social categorization lead to in-group behavior, which discriminates against the out-group and favors the in-group? 48 schoolboys from, from a British school were the participants. They were randomly assigned to a Klee or Kandiski group. They were told they were assigned based off of their art preferences, but this was false and it was actually random. The participants had no contact with each other and all personal details were anonymous. Each person was given a code number. Participants were asked to give a small sum of money between pairs of recipients. The amount of money distributed was the dependent variable. Participants had to make decisions about the rewards by filling out 44 different matrices. The three different types of matrices were the independent variable. An example of maximum joint profit, MJP, would be the choice of 13 and 13, as that provides the largest reward to both members. That means someone decided to give $13 to both people, to two people from both groups. An example of maximum input profit, MIP, would be the choice of 19 and 25, as that would be the largest reward for the member of their own group and the member of another group. An example of the maximum difference, MD, would be the choice of 7 and 1, as that is the largest possible difference in reward between members of both groups. In general, participants were fair in how they gave rewards, but there was a significant tendency to give more money to in-group members rather than out-group members. The researchers noted that there was no rationale for any of the boys to feel they belonged to the groups. There is no history shared between participants, but in-group favoritism and out-group de derogation did occur. Tafshell's research led to other social psychologists investigating social groups and how membership of groups influence individuals. A theory on how we make sense of the world is social representation theory proposed by Moscovici and Nemeth in 1974. They are similar to cognitive schemas, but can be applied to a group. This schema provides information about the group's norms and how members communicate with each other. They establish a common understanding between group members, and they all contain information about the identity of the group and how it functions in a society. Howarth, 2002, aimed to understand the impact of social representations on self-esteem and on the identity of young people living in Brixton. At the time, Brixton had a high proportion of people of color, and the media often associated the area with crime, drugs, and violence. Howard's research question focused on the social consequences of being seen as part of a community labeled violent, criminal, and unruly. The study consisted of eight focus groups with a total of 44 teenagers between the ages of 12 and 16, as well as five interviews with the head teachers of Brixton's secondary schools. 
It included questions related to what it was like living in Brixton and what people who don't belong in Brixton thought about it, who don't live in Brixton. Researchers also included questions regarding community, racism, identity, exclusion, the media, and etc. Howard noted that underlying themes emerged, such as the role of the media, the role of family, perception that Brixton is Black, and the presence of self-hatred. Howarth noted that the negative representation of quote-unquote being from Brixton by those outside was not shared by all people living there. Some participants mentioned their communities were diverse, creative, and vibrant, a view differing from that of outsiders. The conclusion supported the study. Social cognitive theory suggests behavior is modeled by other members of a group and acquired through observation or imitation based off the consequences of the behavior. Bandura, 1977, was one of the first psychologists to investigate how behavior is modeled and acquired through observation and or imitation. He argued that behavior is learned from the environment through the process of observation. Conjin et al. 2007 tested the hypothesis that violent video games were especially likely to increase aggression when players identify with violent game characters. 112 adolescent boys were randomly assigned to play a realistic or fantasy violent or nonviolent video game. They completed with an ostensible partner on a reaction time task in which the loser could blast the winner with loud noise through headphones. This was the aggression measure. Participants were told that high noise levels could cause permanent hearing damage. Habitual video game exposure, trait aggressiveness, and sensation seeking were all controlled for. The most aggressive participants were those who played a violent game and wished they were like a violent character in said game. These participants used noise levels loud enough to cause hearing damage to their partners, although they had not been provoked. Results suggested that identifying with violent characters made players more aggressive, and players were more likely to identify with violent characters in realistic games where they felt immersed. Social cognitive theory has been applied to developmental psychology to understand how adolescents look to role models to identify with because they are in the process of creating their own identities. Under certain circumstances, a child is more likely to imitate people it perceives it's closest to itself, either in age and or sex. If a child imitates the behavior and consequences are rewarding, the child is more likely to continue that behavior. If a parent sees a girl consoling a doll, she or they may say, what a good girl you are, making it more likely the girl will repeat this behavior. This is reinforcement. Reinforcement can be external or internal, positive or negative. If a child wants approval from another person, this is external reinforcement. If the child then feels good about receiving said approval, this is internal reinforcement. Children also take into account what happens to other people when deciding their actions, seeing whether or not they should copy said actions. This is vicarious reinforcement. If they see someone being punished for behavior, the child will learn to not display said behavior. Evaluation. Social cognitive theory remains popular. It convincingly explains how children raised in racist and aggressive households tend to grow up to be racist and aggressive adults. This approach to understanding behavior takes into account cognition, social pressures to provide insights insights into the learning of aggression and gender role development. Social cognitive theory has also formed the basis of phobias with modeling-based therapies. Now we're on to section 3.3. A stereotype is a generalized and fixed way of thinking about a group of people. 
Examples of a stereotype could be prejudice and discrimination. Cardwell, 1996, defines a stereotype as a fixed, overgeneralized belief that a particular group of people, for example, all women are bad drivers. This is an example of a stereotype because there is no reliable, concrete truth behind it. Another would be all men are stronger than women. This is another stereotype with some truth behind it because men have more muscle and bone to their fat ratio. Um... As stereotypes can be positive or negative, a stereotype can be considered a schema as we categorize people into groups and apply general characteristics forming a schema of how group members behave. Our social world is full of complexities and provides us with a great deal of information on how the world works. To avoid information overload, we use stereotypes because they can be easily applied to people. Since we are all already categorize people, places, and things to understand the world, Stereotyping becomes colored by additional associations. One explanation for the formation of stereotypes is Tafjell and Turner's 1979 social identity theory. This theory proposes we categorize people into in-groups and out-groups. We tend to favor the in-group, which leads to positive stereotyping of the in-group. Members of the out-group are stereotyped in a negative way. Stereotyping lifts self-esteem of members of the in-group. Steele and Aronson, 1995, investigated the effects of stereotypes on behavior and described a phenomenon called stereotype threat. This is a situation where individuals suspect their behaviors are being evaluated on the basis of a negative stereotype. People fear they are being judged as a member of a group instead of individually. This results in a self-fulfilling prophecy. To test their theory, participants were asked to take a test. Participants were either European-Americans or African-Americans. When the African Americans were told their test would represent their verbal skills, they, proverb, they performed worse than the Euro, European Americans. Um, they were then told it was a problem-solving test, and they performed just as well as the European Americans. Steele and Aronson claimed the stereotype threat um, due to knowledge of a negative stereotype can cause emotional distress and the participant to not perform well. Culture and its influence on behavior and cognition. Cultures are made up of a set of attitudes, behaviors, and symbols shared by a large group of people and are usually communicated from one generation to the next. Cultural norms are patterns of behavior typical to specific groups and passed down through generations. There's a distinction between surface and deep culture. Surface culture is stuff like food, clothing, music, and literature are an art. Aspects of culture that can easily be viewed by outsiders. Deep culture includes things that aren't as visible to outsiders, such as concepts of time, types of nonverbal communication, ideas about child rearing, and so on. Things that are understood by members of a culture, but less accessible or understood by outsiders. A study by Sanchez and Burks and Nisbet, 2000, Sanchez, Burks, and Nisbet, 2000, investigated Anglo-Americans and Mexican-Americans in a cross-cultural study. Their area of interest was intergroup dynamics in group settings. They theorized that Latin participants' strong interpersonal connection or con strong interpersonal orientation would influence their preference for work groups. In an independent measures experiment, they hypothesized Latin and Anglo-American participants would evaluate interpersonal and task work groups more favorably, respectively. Two groups participated, 110 Mexican university students and 108 Anglo-American university students. They viewed one of two four-minute videos of language tutoring. 
Both were task-oriented, but one also included a socio-emotional task. For example, discussion about the film, small talk, or a handshake. Participants then did a questionnaire evaluating the tutoring, tutoring session's effectiveness and made suggestions for improvement. Results. Both groups rated the task-oriented video more favorably, but the Latin participants rated the task work group less favorably. When analyzing what might improve the tutoring, Mexicans emphasized socio-emotional aspects more, but both groups made the same recommendations whether they believed the um, groups were composed of Anglo-Americans or Mexicans. The conclusion, for Anglo-Americans, task success depends on minimizing socio-emotional concerns. For the Latin Americans, socio-emotional aspects underpin effectiveness and success. Cultural dimensions. Hofstede, 1960, states that there are four cultural dimensions society is organized into. Two more were added later, so there is a total of six cultural dimensions. The first one is power distance, the extent to which people in societies accept a hierarchical order where everybody has a place and no further need for justification. Individualism versus collectivism, whether people prefer a loosely knit social framework where are um, expected to take care of themselves and their immediate families, or a tightly knit framework where individuals expect relatives or members of an in-group to look after them in exchange for loyalty. Masculinity versus femininity, whether a society is competitive, which is considered masculine, or cooperative, which is considered feminine. Uncertainty versus avoidance, the extent to which members of a society feel uncomfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. The fundamental issue here is how a society deals with the unknown future. Long versus short-term orientation, the extent to which a culture values the short long-term over the short-term. Long-term cultures value future rewards, persistence, and perseverance. Short-term societies value national pride, respect for tradition, fulfilling social obligations, and religion. Indulgence versus restraint. The attitude of a culture to the gratification of natural human drives related to enjoying life and having fun. Some dimensions overlap and form clusters. For example, society scoring high on avoidance uncertainty may also score high on restraint. Compliance. One avenue to examine how cultural differences might influence behavior is to compare compliance in cultures. Compliance refers to responding favorably to an explicit or implicit request from others. Explicit may be asking somebody for charity, um, for a charity uh, donation, or implicit, such as advertising, promoting a product. Reciprocity. If somebody does not uh, does something for you, you feel more obligated to do something for them. Commitment. If we make a small commitment, then we're more likely to commit to something larger in the future. Manipulating people to comply. The foot-in-the-door technique involves making a small request before making a more larger request. If someone complies with the first request, they're more likely to comply a second time. The door-in-the-face technique is making an adamantly unacceptable request, then following up with a smaller one that seems reasonable. Integration. Ingratiation. Sorry. Compliance technique where persuaders get a person to like them first through flattery and presenting themselves as a target, then attempting to gain compliance with the request. Petrova et al. 2007. Petrova et al. 2007. 
undertook a field study to determine if the cultural dimension of individualism and collectivism had an influence on compliance. They used the foot in the door technique. Participants included 1,287 Asian international students and a 5% random sample of U.S. students at a large U.S. university. Participants received an email survey and emphasized that participation in the survey was completely voluntary. At the end, participants indicated their willingness to participate in future surveys. The first survey took approximately 20 minutes to complete. One month later, all participants got another survey that would took 40 minutes. The results indicated compliance with the first request had a stronger impact on subsequent compliance among U.S. participants than among Asian participants. U.S. participants who chose to comply were more likely than their Asian counterparts to agree to the subsequent request. Researchers concluded that differences on levels of compliance were due to the individualistic slash collectivistic orientation from participants in both cultures. Within both cultures, the more individualistic participants showed a stronger tendency within early, earlier compliance than the more collectivistic cultures. Chapter 6, Section 5. Socialization. Socialization is a process of learning the social norms of a culture. Enculturation, enculturation is a lifelong process that helps a person acquire social values, cultural norms, behaviors, social roles, expectations, and language. This is how we acquire our first language and is conscious and unconscious process. An individual should conform to the accepted behaviors or risk being considered a deviant by the rest of society. Acculturation is a process of socialization and psychological adjustment that takes place when two cultures come into contact. This is how we acquire our second and third culture. To sum up, enculturation is a one-way process, um, whereas you acquire your own culture. Acculturation can be a two-way process and is the merging of two cultures. Barry, 2005, proposed that people experiencing acculturation behave in one of four ways. One is assimilation, adopting to a new culture and leaving the original culture behind. Two, separation, avoiding interactions with the new culture and holding onto the original culture. Three, integration, becoming bicultural, integrating the new culture whilst maintaining the old culture. Four, marginalization, leaving the original culture behind but struggling to integrate into the new culture. Barry argued that the process of acculturation can be stressful. However, individuals who take on an integration approach are more likely to experience less stress in comparison to other groups. Some points to consider. An older theory of acculturation is the assimilation theory, which is unidimensional. It states that the more individuals integrate into a new culture, the less contact they will remain with their original culture. Barry's theory is bidimensional, claiming contact can still be maintained with the original culture whilst integrating into the new culture. Um, fact, it, it fails to acknowledge that culture is complex and not homogenous. And many studies into acculturation use self-reported methods, which are subject to participant bias especially desirability bias. Many studies only focus on surface culture, such as food and language, and ignore areas that are difficult to study, such as religion. Barry, Finney, Sam, and Vetter, 2006, aim to find a relationship between acculturation and adaptation to life in a new culture. They studied immigrant youth between ages 13 to 18. 
It was found that participants who adopted an integration acculturation profile adapted to life in the new culture most successfully. This was compared to participants who focused primarily on their original culture or their culture or were confused about their cultural identity. Um, this finding supports the claim that acculturation is more successful and less stressful when an individual seeks integration with their new culture and maintains contact with their original culture. Soroska et al. 2017 conducted a study to compare preferred interpersonal distances across countries and aimed to determine if factors other than cultural norms influence this behavior. A survey of 8,943 participants from 42 countries with an age range of 17 to 88 with a mean range of 49 were participating. The study hypothesized that there would be a significant variability in the preferred interpersonal distances across countries when approaching a stranger, an acquaintance, or a close friend. They also hypothesized that age, gender, and outside factors would influence preferences participants have for interpersonal distances. Participants answered a questionnaire consisting of demographic questions and three questions using graphs to depict their preferred interpersonal distances. Three categories of interpersonal distances were measured. Distance to a stranger, acquaintance, and a close person. Mean comparisons showed significant variability in interpersonal distances across countries. The higher the average temperature of a country, the closer the preferred distance from strangers. Women and older participants preferred greater distance. In conclusion, individual characteristics and cultural norms influence interpersonal space preferences. Wang and Mallinckrodt, 2006, used two theories to predict if Chinese and Taiwanese international students in America would experience psychological stress. They used Barry's model of acculturation to gauge an individual's levels of acculturation stress and Bowlby's concept of the secure base to gauge an individual's capacity for exploring a new social environment. The study proposed that A, both attachment anxiety and avoidance wouldn't be negatively associated to assimilation in the host culture. B, a high attachment anxiety and avoidance would predict more sociocultural adjustment difficulties and more psychological stress. And C, high acculturation to U.S. culture and high cultural identification within the home culture would predict less sociocultural adjustment difficulty and less psychological stress. A sample of 54 women and 50 men completed an internet survey. All were students at an American university. They answered three sets of survey questions to determine how they, how they formed adult attachments, attitudes towards their home culture and host culture, and the degree of difficulty that respondents encountered in everyday social situations because of cultural differences. The results suggested that attachment anxiety was negatively associated with acculturation to U.S. culture, and attachment avoidance, anxiety, and acculturation were significant predictors for students' psychological psychosocial adjustment. Researchers concluded that those who avoided social relationships and experienced anxiety about social relationships would not assimilate well and experience more stress. Those who assimilated to the host culture while maintaining identification with their home country would experience less stress. That is all for this episode. Thank you for listening.